Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Is it time to nationalize the fossil fuel industry? I, before you get, you know, all knee-jerk on me, let me lay out the case for it. We'll get there in just a moment. Also, Cole Stangler, who is a Paris-based journalist covering uh, politics, labor, and culture, contributed to the New York Times and a writer for France 24, and a friend of the show. Cole's been on our show on and off for a decade, it seems, is going to drop by and fill us in on what's the deal here with uh, Macron and Le Pen And what are the takeaways from the French election? To start out our program, though, I'm going to get into this. It's time to nationalize the fossil fuel industry. Now, I I know the moment you say nationalize, everybody thinks, oh, my God, Venezuela, uh, Iran. Uh, People don't think much about Norway. But, but, you know, and and all the, you know, the, the, the one time that a Democrat actually said this out loud was back in 20, uh, 2008. And it was during a hearing where the fossil fuel executives, the CEOs, were refusing to answer her questions. And Maxine Waters, Representative Maxine Waters, a black woman with power, something Republicans hate and fear more than anything else they can imagine. Maxine Waters uh, basically came right out and said, if you don't start giving me straight answers, we're going to start talking about nationalizing your industry. She used the word socialize, but, you know, same thing. And, of course, Fox News went nuts. They melted down. In fact, there's a link to it over in, in the, uh, the op-ed at HartmanReport.com. But Fox News and all, the, all those on the right, and frankly, Democrats, who freaked out when Maxine Waters said this, are either unaware of or completely ignoring the long history in this country of nationalizing industries that work against the national interest during a time of crisis. And if you don't think that this is a time of crisis, this climate crisis, well, I've got a tornado to sell you. Or the fact that, hey, it's April and it's snowed in Portland, Oregon. There's an inch of snow on the ground outside right now. Well, it's probably down to a half inch. It's starting to melt. But, you know, it's never happened before. Last year, it was 116 degrees for three days in a row here. That's never happened before either. We're getting Phoenix weather alternating with North Pole weather. I mean, it's just so, you you know, if you don't think that we're in a climate crisis, you're not paying attention. And in large part, this crisis has been brought about by the fact that the fossil fuel industry for over 40 years has been lying to us about the impact of their product on this crisis and funding organizations that are out there lying about climate change and and denying climate change, and funding politicians. I mean, you know, look at Joe Biden had a plan, and the Democrats had a plan to spend a half a trillion dollars, $500 billion on greening the American economy that really would have taken a good bite out of climate change. It would have reduced our carbon emissions substantially in this country over the next five or 10 years. And it was defeated, it passed the House, it was defeated by every Republican in the United States Senate, plus Joe Manchin, who's taking money from the fossil fuel industry. In fact, he's the single largest recipient of fossil fuel industry money in the United States Senate. This is an industry that is calling out for nationalization. I mean, 40 years ago, literally 40 years ago, 
Jimmy Carter, this was 1979, 43 years ago actually, Jimmy Carter declared a national crisis. And he said, you know, he was going to propose legislation to create, quote, this nation's first solar bank, which will help us achieve the crucial goal of 20% of our energy coming from solar power by the year 2000. You've heard me play the clip over and over and again. And he also, Jimmy Carter, the part that's not in the clip that I, that I play for you so frequently, is he also wanted to create a program to sell bonds, essentially like war bonds. FDR did this during World War II. He created a, a, a nonprofit, a government agency, that sold government bonds. In other words, you could loan money to the federal government, essentially. Sold in today's dollars, you know, billions of dollars worth of government bonds to fund an effort to, to, to invent synthetic rubber. This was during World War II because we were running out of rubber for tires for jet, fighter jets. And it worked, and FDR did that. And, and so Jimmy Carter said, just as a similar synthetic rubber, rubber corporation helped us win World War II, so will we mobilize American determination and ability to win the energy war. He proposed this in 79, and you know it all came crashing down 42 years ago this coming January when the fossil fuel industry's candidate, Ronald Reagan, replaced Carter in the White House, killed the solar bank and bond program, and even took Carter's solar panels off the roof of the White House. So if there was ever an industry that merited nationalization, right now it's the fossil fuel industry. But what's the history of this? During the crisis of World War I, President Woodrow Wilson nationalized the country's railroads, our phone companies, and our telegraph operators. He also nationalized the radio networks and all the radio stations in this country. They were returned to private ownership after the war, but he had nationalized them during the war. During World War II, Franklin Roosevelt did the same thing. He nationalized the airplane manufacturers. He na nationalized several gun manufacturers. He nationalized over 3,300 mines in the United States. He nationalized the nation's railroads. He nationalized dozens of oil companies, Western Electric Company, the Hughes Tool Company, Goodyear Tire and Rubber, and even Montgomery Ward, along with 17 foreign companies doing business in the United States. After FDR died, Harry Truman came along, finished the war. He also nationalized the meatpacking industry across the country and the Manahana Monongahela Railroad Company, the nation's steel mills, and hundreds of rail companies. Nearly all were returned to the private sector after the war was over, although it did take until 1965 to reprivatize all of them. Then came Richard Nixon. In the wake of the collapse of the Penn Central Railroad, Richard Nixon oversaw the nationalization and transfer of 20 railroads into a new government entity that was called the National Rail Passenger Corporation. Today we call it Amtrak. Richard Nixon did that. In 74, Congress created another nationalized entity to deal with freight rail. This was, this, I believe this was under uh, Jerry Ford. It was called the Consolidated Rail Corporation. We called it Conrail and it absorbed dozens of failing rail companies. This was nationalization, and they were government held until 1987 when it was privatized. That privatizing Conrail was the third largest IPO, or the, actually at the time it was the largest IPO in American history. In 1984, the Continental Illinois Bank and Trust Company was in a crisis, and Ronald Reagan nationalized it. He bought an 80% ownership share in the company. It wasn't privatized until 1991 by George Herbert Walker Bush and was bought by Bank of America in 94. Also in the 80s, after Reagan recklessly deregulated the savings and loan industry, we saw SNLs crash all across the country as the guys running them made off with billions of dollars in their own private money bins. And so Reagan and Congress created a, an umbrella agency. It was called the Resolution Trust Corporation. And they nationalized 747 of America's savings and loans. Assets over $400 billion. They help, were held as nationalized companies from 1987 until 1995 when they were reprivatized. Then that was Reagan, then George W. Bush. Uh, when, when he was handed the White House by five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court, the nation's airline security was entirely in private hands. After 
you know, Bush said, okay, that's it. And he nationalized airline security across the United States. He put the entire industry out of business. He didn't even bother buying these companies up and nationalizing them. He just shut them down and replaced them with what we call the TSA today, the Transportation Security Administration. He also nationalized the nation's airlines because they were in a crisis after 9-11. Um, the air, he created this thing called the Air Transportation Stabilization Board that ended up holding seven and a half million shares of U.S. Airways, 18 million shares of America West Airlines, three and a half million shares of Frontier Airlines, one and a half million shares of Transair, uh, 2.38 million shares of World Airways. The Bush administration nationalized, you know, in the George W. Bush administration, again, nationalized the two largest mortgage lenders in the United States. You know, when the crash happened in 2008, they, they, we nationalized Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. They nationalized 77% share in AIG, 36% share in Citigroup, 73% share in GMAC, and forced out GM's president, Rick Wagner, who was just doing a terrible job. Obama came into office, and, and he nationalized GM and Chrysler. So, I mean, there's a long history of this. We could buy the three largest oil companies in the United States for less than a half a trillion dollars, about $500 billion. That's one quarter, or maybe one-fifth, of the cost of the, Bush tax, or of the Trump tax cuts for billionaires. For one-fifth of what we paid to give tax cuts to billionaires, we could, we could take over these three large oil companies and then just run them, you know, run them well, but stop all their funding of climate denial and start their, you know, they're seriously attending to the process of figuring out how to, how to shift themselves from being oil companies to being energy companies. I mean, this is not rocket science. I realize people are freaking out about the politics of it. Oh, my God, you're going to call, you know, they're going to call the Democrats socialists. Every president since Eisenhower, well, going all the way back to Woodrow Wilson, has done this during times of crisis. And this is a crisis. You're listening to Tom Hartman. We have a new video over at TomHartman.com that centers around this clip from 1978. The energy crisis is real. It is worldwide. It is a clear and present danger to our nation. These are facts, and we simply must face them. What I have to say to you now about energy is simple and vitally important. Point one, I am tonight setting a clear goal for the energy policy of the United States. Beginning this moment, this nation will never use more foreign oil than we did in 1977. Never. And he continues. Moreover, I will soon submit legislation to Congress calling for the creation of this nation's first solar bank, which will help us achieve the crucial goal of 20% of our energy coming from solar power by the year 2000. What could have been, huh? Check it out at TomHartman.com. Eric in Seattle. Hey, Eric, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? So it's pretty ironic that your rant this morning about nationalizing our fossil fuel industry was right on time because over the weekend I was reading an article at Jacobin West's website. It's titled, American Think Tanks Are Fueling the Mexican Right. And it discusses AMLO's, the president, in mid-April. There's going to be like a showdown in their Congress to pass this legislation to nationalizing not only their fossil fuel industry, but also their lithium stores and other natural resources that they have. Right. The you know, this is what Chile so did like, that provoked mm -hmm. the CIA to support the overthrow of, uh, uh, what's his name, and replace him with uh, Pinochet. Yeah. AMLO just got through a referendum for him to be in power for the next six years or for a total of six years. Mm. Uh, the people overwhelmingly approved that. Not that. I think it was just the last few days. But he's trying to get this reform passed, and there's money going in there. The Baker Institute is involved. Ken Salazar is the head of a commission. 
to try to So they're, they're flipped their, out, not just that their interests, I'm, I'm assuming that they probably share some ownership interests with Pemex and things like that, but also mm-hmm. they're afraid that if it happens in Mexico and it's successful, it'll increase the drumbeat for the same thing to happen here in the United States. That's why I said it's perfect timing that you're, I mean, you've spoken about this before, you've mentioned it, but you ranted about it today, and I think it's it's a great time, I, but, you know, in terms of climate change, too, you know, we need to control these companies and prevent them from causing any more damage. They're actively and, poisoning uh, our atmosphere, which we all live in. I mean, they're actively poisoning it, and then they are buying mm, off yeah. politicians to pretend it's not happening. You can't find a Republican right. who will even acknowledge climate change because they're all on the take from the fossil fuel industry. And the fear mongering that's being spread in Mexico is more on the lines of going backwards instead of moving forward. That, you know, this privatization is not the way to, to or, move or forward. Or you're going to become like uh, Venezuela. Yeah. So good timing, Tom. Thanks for your rant. Yeah. Madeline, Where did you find the article with, about with Mexico? Jacobin. It's on oh, the Jacobin oh, over website. Jacobin. Okay, great. I'll check yes, it out. Yes, yes. It's uh, 4-9-2022. That's when it was supposed American think tanks are feeling the Mexican right. I'll do it. Eric, thank you very thank much you. for the call. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. David in Dallas, Texas. Hey, David, what's up? I love your idea of nationalizing the energy sector of our economy. I have never understood why they get to drill oil and natural gas out of the ground and make money from it. That belongs to all of us. That oil. I'm with you. Plus, they get a $600 billion or a 600, yeah, $600 billion a year subsidy. Yes. I mean, who who made them king? Why are they drilling our oil out of the ground and selling it back to us. Well, we who made them king was money. arguably David Rock or Char, uh, John D. Rockefeller back in the day. Yeah. I mean, you know, basically, exactly. they owned the American guild. politics since the 1880s. Right. The, the, the first Gilded Age. Yep. But I would add two other sectors. I would add banking and health care, because these are the underpinnings of our society. They should not be in private hands. They should be in the hands of a functional government. Yeah. And if we started with energy, banking, and health care, we might have a livable country and, you know, one in which people can survive. I'm with you. I'm with you. David, thank you. You said it very, very well. Larry in Los Angeles. Hey, Larry, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, this is a continuation of our conversation about quantitative easing being, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, fascism, a fascist uh, economic uh, system. Right. And uh, I, I'm basing that on just what's happening today. Right now, we have a lot of corporations that appear to be trying to uh, run us into a recession. You have uh, big corporations raising the price of their products, um, seemingly uh, unnecessarily because they're having the highest profits that ever, they've ever seen. And then you have the banks and, and some of these uh, uh, media outlets trying to talk the Fed into jacking up the Fed rate to a point where it will give us a recession. And I think they're doing this because what happened in the last recession? Well, they finally realized, hey, we got the Fed on our side, and the Fed is going to bail us out just like they did in 2020, and we're going to 
end up being richer with a recession. And this in, in 2020 was the first time that we ever had the uh, major corporations make a profit during a recession. And and they kind of figured this out pretty quick. So this this fascist system of, that we have, and our banking system is fully fascist because right now the Fed uh, pays them interest on the money that the banks borrow from the Fed. And that didn't used to be that way until 2008 after uh, a Republican, which I equate with fascism, uh, they are the fascists in America, after a Republican uh, destroyed our economy and the Federal Reserve then started paying the bank's interest on the money they borrow from the Fed, and then they started paying the corporations trillion. It was a couple right. of trillion You're talking dollars. The negative interest rate thing here, right? For the banks, yeah. Nowadays, banks don't fail anymore. Yeah. They keep every now and then trying to act like, oh, we got to do this. Uh, you know, make sure the banks are in tip-top shape. But if you look at the history of bank failures, we had massive bank failures from uh, the Great Depression all the way up until 2008. And then in, in, um, after Obama became president, banks no longer fail. Republicans give us recessions every time they get a first term in, in the White House. That's actually the best indicator for determining whether we're going to have a, a recession. But these guys act like they just grew a brain and now they can predict when we're going to have a recession. Well, you've you got a Republican banker running the Fed, too, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, who was appointed so, by Donald Trump. So. And again, I'm, I'm equating the, the, the Republicans now. They're, they're embracing fascism. Oh, yeah. and, and when Japan reintroduced quantitative easing uh, in in the early 1990s, since then they have had six or seven recessions. In the previous 10 years before they're bringing that uh, quantitative easing back to Japan, they had zero recessions in 10 years. Hmm. The, these, these people have finally figured out that uh, quantitative easing, which I'm equating with fascism, uh, just just pours goo gobs of money. Yeah, I'm assuming you saw the, the the story or the headline. I saw it in the Financial Times. I think that that the Fed is going to start uh, dumping what was it, 73 billion dollars off its balance sheet every month, or some 82 billion. It was some number in that neighborhood. Um, yeah, I think it was up as high as 90. Yeah, and and this is and this is what they're doing. See, so that when a Republican destroys the economy, the Fed comes in and then. Uh, um, makes the uh, the corporations whole again right. that's what i that's what i call reparations for the rich or yep. reparations for corporations yep and then when the, the democrat gets in the white house what they what they then do is say okay now we're going to do reverse um quantitative yeah. easing now we'll flush this out of our off our balance sheet and we'll raise interest rates and give the democratic president a recession exactly and then they will bail out the corporations again with a Trillions of dollars. There was it was around four trillion when Donald Trump was president. They realized, hey, we can monetize uh, recessions now, and we can make ourselves rich forever until the end of time. Yeah, and and let's not forget that some of the largest fortunes in America were made during the Great Depression, the first Great Depression. The Republican they used to call it the Republican Great Depression, and and you know every time the market crashes, the rich people get richer. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just, well, actually, that that only happened. That only happened for the most part in 2020, and um, uh, it happened in 2008 started, too. Yeah, but you it, had some it of these. Didn't, it didn't. It happened after 2008 because they continued the quantitative easing after the, after Obama became president. They right. were still uh, doing the reparations. No, my point is, they just they just shift their investments to bonds, you know. But anyhow, Larry, thank you for the call. To the Tom Hartman program. Let's talk media for the sane among us. We'll be right back. Ken in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Ken, what's up? Good morning. Uh, this is about something you're talking about. Maybe I've got this wrong, but that's not the way I remember it as you stated it. GM and Chrysler were never nationalized. What it was is that GM was given a loan, and they paid it back. And Chrysler, I don't know if they got a loan or not. I think they may have. Yeah, but no, that's not the way it worked, Ken. We actually, the federal government created a new corporation. It was called the New yeah. GMCO, LLC. The New GM, they referred to it as the New GM. It was owned by the government. General Motors itself went bankrupt. The assets of General Motors were transferred into this New GM Corporation, which was owned by our government. We, we made the loan to the New GM Corporation on the condition that Wagoner, the CEO of GM, quit. And he quit, he stepped down. 
And for several years, at least a year, the government owned that new GM Co. and then they reprivatized it. They sold it back into the marketplace. The company right now that is GM is not the same company it was before. It's literally a different corporation. Gotcha. But however, wasn't Chrysler uh, basically bought out by Fiat? Ultimately, yeah, but the, the transition money, it wasn't a full government privatization with Chrysler. It was less than 50%. I think it was 34%. Okay. It's in my article. Might have to go back okay. and look. But with GM, it was 100%. Oh, gotcha. I never realized it. Well, thank you very yep. much. Yeah, and you'll find the links to the sources uh, over at HartmanReport.com if you want the details. Thanks a, lot okay. for the, thanks a lot for the call. Brian in Chicago. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hello, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I must say you are just the smartest man on the radio and uh, such a simple, plain explanation. I'm a homeless guy. I'm squatting here in Illinois. You know, I was in a tent in the woods and the winter came. Yeah, I built a little wooden hut. It's where I'm surviving now. I work when I can, you know, some low-budget, low-wage jobs. And and I used to have to Brian, hunt what's down. Brian, what's, what's the point? Where, where are you going with this? I used to have to hunt down electricity. I would have mm -hmm. to sit at the library or a Burger King to ch plug in my cell phone. Uh -huh. I spent a couple hundred dollars, Tom. My cell phone has not used fossil fuels in over a year now. So you got some solar panels for your shack? Yes, yes. The police wow. know I'm back here and everything. They, they look at me saying, I don't know what they think. I don't care what they think. <laughs> I have not used a fossil fuel. I have a TV. I have a fan that runs 24-7. I have music. I have a police scanner. You know, and it's all powered by the sun. None right, of it Brian, you need to be talking to all these people who, and all these websites that are saying, oh, you can't convert to electricity. It's too expensive. Well, here's a homeless guy who's doing it. Brian, God bless you. Thanks a lot for the call. Thanks for sharing that story. Charles in Miami, Florida. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind today? Hey, love you show, Tom. Thank you, um, Charles. I'd like to give a shout-out to Larry from L.A., Morris from Long Beach, uh, Norma from Alabama, and also Jeff from Portland. You guys inspire me every time I listen to Tom. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm calling today because, unfortunately, I had to disagree with you, Tom. Oh, go for it, it's Charles. Been on my mind. It's been on my mind for a, a, a little minute now because of the gas prices, and I think, no, we should nationalize. I think what we should do is have our own um, American oil company that's going to drill oil for the government and just um, distribute that um, through gas stations for people. But And um, what we can do is lower the price of oil. Um, I think we would be the competition for the big oil companies. And I think you can hire a lot of minorities also. Um, you can do it in certain parts of the country. And the best part about it, what I like, though, about my plan is that I want to, introduce, I want to have so many different um, environmentalists. Involved. I want to have so many studies involved. I even want to have film and, um, you know, video of when we do have, like, an uh, uh, oil spill or something like that. I want to study it. I want to publish it. I want people to know exactly what we don't see through private enterprise where the public would be, you know, would, would have a focus on. Mm -hmm. And that, that's my thing because I think the game is rigged. I thought about it after, um, right after the um, um, coronavirus pandemic, and Saudi Arabia decided to flood the market with their oil and put everybody else out of business. That means only one thing: they have a, a monopoly, and they can they determine the price at any time they want to. So basically, we're stuck with this. And the reason why I want to do this because I am into green energy, and I do think once you know we um, control this sort of. Um, enterprise that we can eventually, I mean, not eventually, but quickly enough, we can make a point that, hey, we need green energy. And and um, it doesn't have, you know, let's say um, this thing doesn't have to work all the time, but in a, in a moment of crisis like this, where we feel like, you know, we have to open up the reserves, then I think that's when we should stop pumping oil. And last but not least, I would like to say, Tom, that um, if you allow me to call back on Friday, if it's okay, um, I would like to just talk about um, you know, with the minimum wage, companies, corporations are always saying, no, we can't allow you to, we can't, we can't raise the minimum wage because we're going to raise prices on everything and we're going to fire people. Well, guess what? After the big quit this summer, cor corporations and companies have raised pay rates. 
right? Mm-hmm. And now that um, that, um, these corporations are saying that they're, they're they're gouging us. They're the ones that's doing it, and now they're blaming it on Biden. I yeah. think they they are just like always. They're very insidious, and they like to point the blame on everybody else. But they're being greedy right now. Every little game that we've made so far is shaking it out of us. Thank you, Tom. Love you yeah. so much. Well, Charles, this is this is one of the points that I was making in my in my op-ed today over at HartmanReport.com is that is that the the oil companies are actually manipulating the price of oil both for profits and also for political purposes. You know, j- jacking up the price of oil. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I get what you're saying about we should have an American oil company. Um, I, I completely understand that, but it, it would take years to build out the infrastructure and hire the people and everything else. Whereas you could nationalize ExxonMobil by simply making a, an offer to buy, you know, half their stock at a price a little bit above the market price right now, and just you know acquire it in the open marketplace. You could nationalize that company tomorrow. Well, the thing is this. I love all our agencies. I don't want to shut any of them down. I don't want them to privatize. I, I believe they belong to the people. And if we have government agencies that's monitoring it, that's, um, you, know, um, uh, reg- you know, regulating it, mm-hmm. I just feel like once the public is more aware, we can see what's going on. Because you won't see on a private company what they do on an oil spill. Like Rachel had to show us one time, and I think it was in Michigan, they had an oil spill. And they just covered yeah, it up. But they didn't yeah. stop it. And it was just going into, yeah, you have to expose this stuff. And there's no one else going to do it but our government itself. So, yeah. no, we need this. We need yeah. this time. We please think about it, okay? Okay. I got it, Charles. Thank you. So, should we nationalize oil in the United States? And what do you think would happen or will happen if it, if it happens that Donald Trump is indicted? What happens if Kushner is indicted? Did he get $2 billion from the Saudis just for selling us out? Let's say you. And do you think it's possible that one of the reasons Americans are behaving so weirdly, not just from the role model of Donald Trump, but because the news has become clickbait? As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Paul Stangler, an old friend of the show, writer and producer at France 24, now lives in Paris. Paris-based journalist covering labor, culture, and politics. He also is a contributor to the New York Times. ColeStangler.com is his website. Uh, Cole Stangler, S-T-A-N-G-L-E-R, is also his Twitter handle. Cole, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked. I'm, I'm really grateful you could... Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> drop in on the show today. Uh, I wanted to talk with you. Talk, well, thank you. I wanted to talk with you about the French elections. What you know, Macron and Le Pen are going into the finals here, and it seems to me that the big issue that is hurting Macron. Correct me if if I'm wrong on this. Is his embrace of of neoliberal policies? Uh, you know, but, but give us your your take on what's happening right now first. Yeah, I mean, you know, Macron has suffered tremendously, uh, you know, in terms of his popularity over the course of his presidency. And, you know, I think it's important to remember, even when he was first elected in 2017, um, you know, we had a real base of support. Um, but when he was elected in opposition to uh, Marine Le Pen, he benefited, he benefited from a, an immense amount of support um, from people who wanted to simply uh, prevent Marine Le Pen, the far right, from from essentially uh, taking over the country. 
And the problem is that over the course of these last five years, since Macron was elected in 2017, I think the fundamental problem is that he's governed the country as if he had a massive mandate for these uh, extremely um, pro-business uh, uh, reforms that have contributed to uh, uh, increased uh, inequality in France, that have contributed to uh, uh, freezing in, in, uh, in, in spending on, on public services, that have contributed to frustrations among uh, working class people and lower income people that we saw with the Yellow Vest movement. And that's really the fundamental problem here. And we saw, I think, the same problem exposed with the results yesterday in which Macron, despite governing with this massive mandate, um, ultimately did not really uh, have that strong of a score, around 28 uh, percent in, in the first round. Um, and now going into the runoff round against Le Pen, if you look at the polls, um, they're pretty close. And I think it comes back to this idea of Macron governing as if they had this huge mandate. And pretty clearly, I don't think it isn't the case. We're seeing it picked up in the polls right now. Yeah, I mean, he put through a massive tax cut for rich people. He's been weakening labor protections. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. And there's a movement in France from the far left. And uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, if I'm remembering correctly, is the Yeah, Mélenchon, yeah. Yeah, he got 21% of the vote. I mean, he was like within spitting distance of Le, Le Pen. And, and he's out there saying it's time for us to bring our jobs back home. I mean, let, let's even back off a little bit on this globalization stuff and, and you know, bring back some of the French manufacturing to replace some of the Chinese goods. Or, or am I, you know, I mean, you live there. I don't. Am I misreading? No, that? I mean, yeah, you know, you know, Mélenchon got a lot of support, um, you know, a really in, in, in a lot of ways they're different. But in, in some ways, they're the same. They're, they're similar, at least in terms of the coalition, you know, a very Bernie Sanders like coalition composed of uh, some amount of of working class people who lean to the left. Um, which is significant in a time in which the left has lost so much of its historic links to to, to unions uh, and, and the working class. So that chunk of support, Mélenchon led among young voters, so age 18 to 24, uh, voted in significant numbers for Mélenchon. Uh, Macron was below in third when it comes to younger voters behind Mélenchon and, and, and Le Pen. And Mélenchon also picked up on this sort of more middle-class vote, middle-class professionals who lean to the left. So a very Sanders-like coalition that I think was very impressive if you look at the score, even more so when you consider the context that we're in today in France, in which you have the mainstream political forces that are very hostile to Mélenchon's program, which is not ultimately that radical of a program. It really is a fundamentally social democratic platform, raising the minimum wage, investing in public services, spending money to fight climate change. But Mélenchon's faced a lot of hostility from the political establishment. He's also faced hostility from the media establishment. And I've written about it before, and others have, have, have been talking a lot about this more recently. But the media in France, in some ways, similar to what we've seen in the U.S., is pushing the country in this really rightward direction. You turn on the news in France, and you're more likely than not going to hear things about immigration, Islam, French identity. And that's the sort of kind of backdrop. There's a lot of factors that go into it. But that's sort of the backdrop for Marine Le Pen's success. And again, to get back to my initial point, it makes it all the more remarkable that Mélenchon was able to get the score that he did sort of in the context that we are in today in France. Do you think that if uh, Macron wins this election, this runoff election in two weeks, that he will continue to govern in this kind of uh, almost a, th a synthesis between uh, Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, you know, this, you know, embracing neoliberalism and flirting with the hard right, you know, it's, uh, in ways, or will he shift in the direction of Melchon toward the left? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of voters in the left, I mean, first off, I should, I should be clear. I mean, you know, I don't want to exaggerate it too much, but I'm not so sure even that Macron's going to be able to win this election. I mean, he is the really? favorite right now. He probably will win, but uh, I don't think we should take that for granted. Well, if Le Pen wins, then what does that mean for France and for the European Union and for the future of, uh, you know, basically democracy in Europe? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be pretty catastrophic if Le Pen won the election. If you look at her program, you know, now as we're having to take this this prospect more and more seriously, people are looking more carefully at at this program. And legal experts have pointed out that you have a number of elements in here that are flat out unconstitutional or will be considered unconstitutional. You're having a referendum on, on immigration, um, giving additional rights to French uh, nationals, uh, reducing rights for people that uh, have dual nationality. She wants to get rid of the um, uh, giving French nationality to 
um, uh, to people if they're born on, on, on French soil that they can obtain it after a period of time if they're born to foreign to foreign parents, etc. All these proposals that um, aren't just heinous on a, on a sort of moral, ethical, social level, but also uh, pose a lot of legal problems. And people, you know, if you, if you look at this program, you know, the, the parallel would be maybe something like um, something like Hungary or Poland, where mm -hmm. you're kind of operating in this sort of legal gray area where you are more or less openly flouting uh, European laws, perhaps flouting domestic laws that have been in place. Um, and so it's, it's extremely concerning. And then not to mention, of course, perhaps, you know, to draw parallels to the U.S. Again, what we saw after Donald Trump's election, the way that it legitimized further really vile strains of thought against Muslims, uh, against against minorities, black people, people of color. And that's something that a lot of people are, are worried about in France. But the question is, are, is there going to be enough support behind Macron this time to to get him over the hump, it's a lot closer. He's he's in the lead if you look at the if you look at the polls right now. But I really don't think we should take it for granted that he's going to be elected. And this goes back also to, to their mentality in office is that a lot of people are very critical uh, of Macron and have a, a sense of resentment against him precisely because they see him operating in this sort of bubble where he's not taking into account you know the fact that people are upset and that he needs to sort of give them a reason to vote for them. That's what a lot of people on the left I've been speaking to just today who are hesitating about whether or not to vote, you know, it'd be nice to have something in their direction, given the fact that if you look at these, you look at these uh, results, Mélenchon got, you know, over 20% of the vote. So if Macron, I think, you know, was thinking in his, in his best interest, perhaps there would be, you know, some sort of bone given to, given to these left-wing voters, but based on the way that he's governed so far, you know, I don't think we should hold our breath necessarily for that. Right, his label of president for the rich has stuck. He seems to the label of arrogance is also stuck. Do I have that right? Yeah, and, and it's, you know, and it's reflected, and I was just looking over all the, it's not quite exit polls in French because it's not conducted exactly after people leaving the polls, but it's the equivalent of exit polls. Looking at the numbers yesterday, Macron's voters skew wealthy. Uh, they're wealthier than, than the average French population. They're much older than the rest of the French population. So certainly there is a sort of political label of calling him president of the rich, but if you look at his base of support, um, Macron has... Has, has support from, from people making more money than the rest of the French population. And Le Pen, um, Le Pen vice versa. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens in a couple of Yeah, weeks. it's going to be a fascinating ride here. Uh, Cole Stangler, uh, France 24 and, and uh, colestangler.com and Cole Stangler on Twitter. Cole, thanks a lot for dropping by. It's always great seeing you. Uh, yeah. Just to wrap up the conversation with Macron, uh, Macron has... Uh, carried 28% of the vote. Le Pen has 23% of the vote. And Mélenchon, the Bernie Sanders of France, he has 22% of the vote. And, you know, now because Le Pen got that one extra percent over Mélenchon, she's the one that is going to go into the runoffs with Macron. Frankly, if instead, the you know, the Bernie of France, uh, Mélenchon had gotten one additional percentage point and taken it from Le Pen. So he got 23 instead of, you know, instead of Le Pen. Um, then Macron would be going up against a guy to his left and he would have to start shifting to the left. Right now he's going up against a woman to his right. And sadly, it seems that, you know, he may be shifting to his right. Although Cole, Cole is saying he thinks he needs to bring in the Melichon voters. It's going to get real interesting. Stick around. We'll be right back with your calls. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance by Edgar Villanueva. Chapter 1, Stolen and Sold. How Notions of Separation and Race Result in Colonization and Trauma. Who's your people? That's the first question Lumbee Indians ask when we meet someone new, as if we're working out a massive imaginary family tree for humanity in our heads and need to place you on the appropriate limb, branch, or twig. We even sell a t-shirt that has that printed on it. Who's your people? I throw people off with my Latino-sounding last name, which came from my non-biological father, who was, in fact, Filipino. He was in my mom's life, and therefore in my life, for a brief moment between the ages of zero and two. When I'm with other Lumbies, I have to mention the last names of my grandfather and grandmother, Jacobs and Bryant so they know where to place me in the Lumbee family tree. A Lumbee will keep an ear out for the most common surnames like Brooks, Chavis, Lowry, Locklear. 
As soon as you say you're related to these families, the stories unfold. Oh, I knew your great-grandfather. I knew your auntie. There's always a connection. If you've never met a Native American in person before, you might be saddled with some common misconceptions about me. I have never lived in a teepee. I've never even lived on a reservation. I can't survive in the wilderness on my own. I can't kill or skin a deer. Shoot, I can't even build a fire. I didn't get, no, I didn't get a free education. I'm still paying off those loans. And yes, I pay taxes. It wasn't until my late 20s that I really began the process of deeply connecting with my Native heritage. There were three main reasons for this one. One, I'm an urban Indian. At least half to three quarters of us are. Note, urban doesn't necessarily mean we live in cities. It's a term that refers to all Indians who do not live on reservations. And yes, I use the terms Native American and American Indian interchangeably. Unless you're an Indian too, you're probably better off sticking with Native American just to keep things simple. Two, I've spent the majority of my adult life working in philanthropy, basically the whitest, most elite sector ever. Three, I'm Lumbee. The people known today as Lumbee are the survivors of several tribes who lived along the coast of what is now North Carolina. Those ancestors were the first point of contact for the Europeans in the late 1500s. So we've had nearly 500 years of interaction with the settlers. Contrast this with some of the West Coast tribes, for many of whom the experience of colonization has been going on for just 200 some odd years, less than half that time. My people have been penetrated by and exposed to whiteness for a long, long time, longer than any other North American native community. We assimilated to survive. The fact that any shred of anything remotely appearing to be native exists among us is really a miracle. Resilience has become a trendy word in conversations about business, insurance, and climate. Let me tell you, my people really have a corner on resilience. Originally Sioux, Algonquin, and Iroquois-speaking people, today Lumbees have no language to call our own, although we have a distinctive dialect on top of the Southern North Carolina accent. We have so fully embraced Christianity that when you go to apply for or renew your tribal membership card, you're asked which church you attend. While we maintain our notion of tribal sovereignty, we are pretty thoroughly colonized. There are people who deny that Lumbees are native at all, as if a group of opportunists just came together to make this tribe up because they wanted to get some government money. Honestly, that's ridiculous. All you have to do is go to Robeson County, North Carolina, where there are 60,000 people concentrated who definitely are not quite white or black. Some of them look as stereotypically Indian as Sitting Bull, as my maternal grandfather did. Lumbee physical characteristics are on a spectrum, from presenting white to presenting black, because the area historically has been a third, a third, a third, Lumbee, black, and white. And there have been some intermingling over the past half millennium. In fact, the most probable fate of the famous lost colony of Roanoke, the group of English settlers led by Sir Walter Raleigh, who arrived in 1584, is that they didn't disappear at all. They just got hungry and needed help, and the native coastal Indians, my ancestors, took them in and integrated them. There have been linguistic studies on the British influences within the Lumbee dialect that further support that theory. Other native tribes give Lumbee a hard time because of anti-black racism. Indians elsewhere in the country have said things to me like, oh, you guys are not really Indian, you play hip-hop at your powwows, which, by the way, is not true. Or they've said we're not Indian because we're not fully recognized by the federal government. There's such a scarcity mentality part of the legacy of the colonizer's competitive mindset, that there are Indians who fear that there will be fewer Indian resources paid out to them if more unrecognized Indians get federal recognition. It was only in 1956 that the U.S. Congress rec recognized Lumbees as Indians by passing the Lumbee Act, but the full benefits of federal recognition were not insured in the act, and to this day we are still fighting for the federal legislation that would do so. In 2020, legislation that would grant Lumbee's full federal recognition passed the House of Representatives, but failed to receive approval from the Senate. There are eight tribes in North Carolina, and only one, the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Nation, is federally recognized. Any of us could be unrecognized tomorrow. Federal recognition is given and taken away by the stroke of a pen. There have been tribes who were granted federal recognition by one administration until the next president came along and took it away. This happened to the Duwamish tribe in Seattle. We're all subject to someone who's not an Indian calling those shots. The book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance by Edgar Villanueva.
Aretha in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Aretha, what's on your mind today? Hi, how are you doing today, Mr. Tom? I live in Lakeland, Florida, and I've been kind of disappointed because I moved from Delaware. Mm -hmm. I've been kind of disappointed in the governor here. Lately, the critical race theory is literally driving me crazy with him. He had a briefing the other day, and I noticed he had a child on there that was a minor. And the first thing I said, well, let me go look at some of the curriculums and see what's being taught. Well, I don't see critical race theory in middle school. No. Nowhere. No, it's so it, my, it's not even in normal colleges. It's just in law schools. Okay. And that's see, Like, so I'm like, well, what are they pushing? So I just came to the realization they don't want to talk about slavery. They don't want to talk about history of Native Americans. They don't want, you know, it, they yeah. don't want to talk about. Holocaust. They don't want to talk about anything from the past. They want to just make it that that never happened. Yep. You know, we're going to start from 2021 or 20 and we're going to keep going or, you know, 2019 and keep going. And and I, I find that very annoying and it angers me because I feel yep. like with me having grandkids now, I want my grandkids to grow up and love everybody. I don't care if they're, they're black, white, gay. I, that doesn't bother me. If they have a good heart, and they're a good person, that's the most important part. And for a lot of the televangelists that are pushing some of this, I find it odd because God loves all. So Mm -hmm. really, how are you reading that Bible? Mm -hmm. And that that just, you know, I'm trying to come to grips with it. So how we can teach our kids, you know, we got to look out for our future and our kids is our future. And if we keep teaching, you know, hate, and I, I just got a bad feeling, this ain't going to come out good for America. And I hope and I pray that enough of us come together and say enough of yeah. the race. Uh, I'm, with you, enough. Enough. I'm with you. And I, I, I am hopeful that this is a fever that will break uh, probably with the next election. I think that some of the Trump crazies are probably going to lose elections quite badly in 2022. And that mm-hmm. might uh, take some of the steam out of it. But, you know, right now, this is the direction they're going. Aretha, thank you very much for a thoughtful call. I appreciate it. Neil in Pearl City, Illinois. Hey, Neil, thanks for listening to WCPT. What's up? Well, uh, a few years ago, I read, was reading a Shelby Foot history of the Civil War. And the la- something jumped out at me. It was, I believe, the last address that Jefferson Davis gave to the Confederate Congress. I think it was Christmas Eve of 1864. And what jumped out at me is he talked about they had to prepare to conduct a multi-generational war. And when I look at what's going on today, wow. yeah, we're about six generations into that multi-generational war, and now it's coming out in the open. Wow. Just wanted to make that comment. <laughs> I did not know that, Neil. If you can find a link to that or anything like that, would you try to tweet it at me? I'm not that high tech. I have okay. a hard copy uh, of the three volume Shelby Foot history of the Civil War, which is very biased, by the way. But he does give when he's talking about battles, he really does give historically accurate analysis. But it's in that. And I don't know. I've been trying to find it in there now and I can't find it. I know yeah. it's in book three somewhere near the end, but I yeah. can't find it. But it is, I believe it was the last speech he gave. Uh, the Christmas address to the Confederate Congress. Interesting. I'll try to remember this weekend to go looking for it. Neil, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. Well, I, I keep appreciate up the good work, please. I'll thank do my you. very best. Thank you. Earl in Hyde Park, Illinois. Hey, Earl, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? Hey, John. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. On that Boris Johnson thing over in England, I know you speculated, I think you have, that we would never get a Trumpian-type president if we had their parliament. Had a parliamentary system. government. Yeah. Yes, and I was suggesting that Boris Johnson is a Trumpian type, and uh, maybe if the uh, parties were, you know, more supportive of the uh, Johnson regime, they might be able to go all the way into, you know, a dictatorship. I don't know. I'm I was just speculating on that. Yeah, I, I get it, Earl. I'm skeptical of that because... Trump literally, I mean, told over 30,000 lies as president. He just made crap up. And, you know, Trump lied and got away with it. Boris Johnson lied and got nailed for it. And it wasn't even a, you know, hugely consequential lie. It wasn't like he was telling the people of Great Britain, uh, you know, don't worry about COVID, just be happy like Trump did here. And Johnson hasn't been out inflaming racial tensions in the UK, to the best of my knowledge. 
I'm not a scholar of Boris Johnson, but it, it seems to me like he's a, a more conventional conservative politician. I mean, I, I disagree with his policies and uh, particularly his economic policies. And you could say, you know, he's just making stuff up when he says, oh, neoliberalism is wonderful, except he's not saying that anymore. Actually, Brexit was, you know, a, a repudiation of a large chunk of the neoliberal theory, the whole the so-called free trade thing. So, Earl, I, you know, I get what you're saying, but I don't think that's going to be uh, I don't think that's going to be an issue. Earl, thanks for the call. Jordan in Albuquerque. Hey, Jordan, what's on your mind today? Yeah, thanks for taking my call, Tom. A quick comment and then to my point and question. So it seems if I were a teacher, and thank God I don't live in a state that has banned critical race theory, but if I was a teacher that lived in a state that has banned critical race theory, that Black History Month has put me in quite a predicament of what yep. to talk about in my classroom. Yep. But on to that, I was wondering, has there been any discussion that the long game of critical race theory being banned in schools is depriving the potential of reparations for black people. Because that would have a generational effect if a generation says this never happened. How does another generation ever say, how do we rectify this grievance? And I'll take your answer off there. Thank you. Sure. That's an interesting thought, Jordan. Actually, can I stay on sure. the line? I don't yeah. want to take your off. we got 20 seconds. Sure. But it's, uh, my guess is that the Republicans think that reparations are so unlikely that they don't have to do an end game to prevent it. But it would have that effect. I mean, if we can continue teaching the happy slave story, then reparations don't make as much sense. Thank you. And that, that's pretty much what I assumed as well. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. That, that's fascinating. I hadn't considered that. I should have. Uh, you know, again, you know, we all look at life through our own lenses. And here's another example of it. Curtis in Mobile, Alabama. Hey, Curtis, it says you disagree with me. So you go to the front of the line. What, what do you disagree with well, me about? Well, you're, you're lying about the Republicans talking about race. It's the Democratic Party that constantly calls anybody that they disagree with a racist. It's the Democratic Party that formed the KKK. George Wallace, uh, Bill Connor, those are people. Yeah, you're right. Mentioned. They were Democrats. Those, those were racist. Sure. And they were Democrats. Yeah, you're right. The, the, okay, the, the Democratic Party was the home to the Dixiecrats so you before 1960. Don't, don't uh, talk over Curtis, me. I wanted to get my point in. You're, you were lying about it. So I am not lying about it, Curtis. The simple fact of the matter is that the Democratic Party is not proposing laws saying you may not teach black history. The Republican Party not, is not only proposing these laws, they passed them in a half a dozen states. That's not true. It is. But, it absolutely is. But you're saying it's not, wait, wait, critical race, race theory is not being taught, right? Critical race theory is not being taught anywhere except in law schools, but black history is, and that's what Republicans are outlawing. So what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that Republicans are outlawing. Uh, Curtis, this is, this is a pathetic conversation. I'm going to move along. Thank you very much. Steve in Chicago. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Uh, yes, I want to make a couple of points. Yes, there isn't a hue and cry out there with regard to, you know, the first white person to do X, Y, and Z. However, you know, we do need to be, you know, detailed in terms of the way in which we define white. Because if you live in a northern city in, the, in this country, you're probably uh, surrounded by people who are wets, white ethnics. And oh, hey, John of, Kennedy was the first Catholic yeah, president yeah, of the United exactly. States. And that was a big friggin' deal. Exactly. The notion that white people are just this homogeneous group is absurd. There are plenty of people running around in America. Well, I wouldn't say it's absurd. Wait, wait, wait. I, it, it's been it's been basically law and policy for a long, long time. But but well, it's, but, it's but you're, you're, you're correct to interject some nuance into it, Steve. Right, exactly. Because there are plenty of Polish people wondering where where is the first person of Polish extraction to do this? Where's the first Russian, Serbian, Croatian, blah blah blah? Right. Go on and on and on. Right. It's just that which we, gets that us back have... to Vangelis's thing of you know we used to think of each other of different tribes or races or whatever you want to call it as being from a particular place rather than looking a particular way. And, right, and, and he's, he right. suspects that eventually we'll come back to that because that's like deep in our DNA, this idea that, you know, uh, this is my group and that's your group. Um, the question Absolutely. isn't, can we do away with that? We'll never do away with that. The question is, can your group and my group live together? Right. And it's an evolving process. And though I know the last caller wanted to sort of, you know, define it in terms of black and white. The reality is that a century ago, the people who were marching through Washington, D.C., circa 25 and 26, and those famous photos that we all have seen, uh, those people were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They did not regard me or my, my ancestors as white people because we're from the Balkans. 
And, and you know, they didn't think of Catholics as white people. They didn't think of Jews as white people. I go down a long list. So, yes. It, I, you know, I would say white. in the 60s, yeah, you know, if, if one of my best friends was Polish and, and he, he took all kinds of crap for it. But, but he wouldn't have gotten shot by a cop if he got pulled over. He looked like a white guy. I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, that's the whole point of that book. You know, when the Irish became white is that because right, the, the because Italians became white and the Jewish became white. Exactly. You know, right. Because of the color of their skin, they could they could blend in, whereas black people have been uniquely the easy targets of this. This is the, this comment I made, you know, uh, six months ago to we had a, a scholar on black studies on. And I said, isn't racism just the laziest form of classism or ca uh, uh, the laziest kind of caste system? And, uh, you know, I think I offended the, the, my guest, and, but and even, I, I stand by even, it. Yes, and even, even with regard to the notion of simply blending in, I mean, unless you can just do away with your Russian accent or your Ukrainian accent, you can't just blend well, in. Well, your children will. That's the yeah, point. Yeah, exactly, but the exactly, children exactly. of a black person can't just blend away right. the color of their skin. No, and I, we have to acknowledge I, that. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's just uh, what I'm saying is that there, it's not just simply this black and white divide. It's simple, uh, that simple. No, there, there's this a whole spectrum that includes uh, gender, that includes religion, that includes ethnicity. I mean, all sorts of things that are part of this equation and they're intertwined. Yeah, yeah. It, it is complex, but at, at the bottom level or at, at the foundational level, underneath it all, is 400 years of slavery in this country that specifically went after one particular group of people in a big way. I mean, yeah, there were there were Hispanic slaves and Native American slaves, but it was all about African slaves. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.